Well, good morning. I'm Nate, one of the pastors on staff here. Good to be with you. So good to hear you singing out, your voices being raised, and um, I appreciate Jessica's prayer that we're going to go to Scripture together today and, and, and seek that God would speak to us. I uh, hope you found the little Valentine's candies on the table there. Um, anybody enjoy these conversation hearts? I don't know anybody that likes these. That's, I mean, just honestly, they're like, like chalk, you know. You, you can't eat these without water close by. That's all, I, that's all I'm saying. Uh, but make sure you grab a little... And, this, uh, we mean this label here, you are loved, you are loved. As Jessica was talking, I was thinking there might be some that, that, that look at the picture of her with two friends and think, I wish I had close friendships like that. Uh, we long for that, and, and I hope that you'll find that this is a safe place, a good place to make connections with others, to find community with others uh, in your life. I want to start with just a question this morning. Where did you find joy this week? Where did you experience the joy of God in your life this week? Those moments of peace, those kind of things that came across to the side where you had some non-anxious, quiet moments, a, a chance for a, a graceful conversation with someone else? Where did you experience the joy of God this week? And I'm not just talking about the happy moments. We know that happiness and joy can be connected to each other, but as we said a couple weeks ago, happiness is connected to the external things, uh, things outside that make us happy, while joy is connected to eternal things, the things that is happening through God's presence in our lives, the love of God, the fact that we're created in his image, that we're beloved, that he values us, that brings us joy. Where did you find joy this week? Sometimes it's hard to find. Sometimes it's hard to identify it. Sometimes joy comes out of nowhere like a little joy sneak attack and kind of catches us off guard. Where did you find it this week? Joy came to me uh, Tuesday night. I was at a meeting. Let, imagine a meeting where joy came in. I was at a meeting uh, with some leaders from the church here, and we were talking about our connections with local partners, uh, what God's doing in the Kansas City area, and, and global partnerships, what he's doing around the world. And we had a chance to have a video call with Eugenio Restrepo, and uh, he leads uh, the work of our church and other churches in Central America. And as he was talking about what God is doing in Colombia and Ecuador and Mexico, I had a sense of joy just come over me. That in the midst of my everyday busy life, the things that are grinding me down, the things that make me tired, I sat and heard that God is moving in the lives of our brothers and sisters south of the border, that he is alive and active. And I had a moment of joy just hearing him tell a story and remembering that, that God is on the move. And that brought joy to me. Hearing what God is doing can bring joy. So how about you? Where did you find joy this week? I want to give you one minute to just talk around your table a quick little story of a place you saw joy this week. Um, I want to give you one minute. Again, that's not enough time for some of you, and it's way too much time for others of you. Um, but just uh, turn to someone next to you there and share one way you saw joy this week in activity around you. And I just want to encourage you, if you just glance around yourself real quick, if you see someone on their own and want to invite them onto your table, they can certainly say no, but go ahead and give that invitation. Uh, take one minute. Where did you see joy this week?
Okay, another 30 seconds, another 30 seconds. All right, I want to have you wrap those up. Let me get your attention again. If you're watching at home, had it, hopefully you had a chance to reflect on that question for yourself, where are you seeing joy this week? Sorry to interrupt. Um, you probably got one story in that time, but, uh, but thanks for, for diving in. We're going to continue to walk through Paul's letter to this church in Philippi. It's a letter that was written around 60 AD, which is just a few years ago, right? A little ways ago. Paul had walked into Philippi about 10 years before he wrote this letter and began to share what Jesus was doing in the, in the world at that time. And, and people became followers of Jesus and the small little community of, of followers of Jesus got formed and, and he went back and visited them again and then Ten years after that first visit, he wrote them this letter that we find in the New Testament. And we continue to read it thousands of years later because it tells such a wonderful story of God's grace and mercy, of hope and joy. It continues to speak to us. And so this is our third week walking through Philippians. We're going to continue to look at this letter. Uh, listen to these words from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We're going to look at these verses together this morning, but before we do that, I just want to step back and remind you of the context of Philippians, the the city of Philippi, what it was all about. There's a short little video I want to show you. It's about a minute and a half, and it just sets the tone for this letter that Paul wrote. So uh, watch this with me. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there, Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus's story. I love that phrase right at the end, that our story is a lived expression of Jesus's story. 
I think that's where joy starts to come into our lives as we see that we get to be part of what God's doing in the world today, get to join him in that work. That video was put out by the Bible Project, which is a great website if you want to go there. They've got resources about all sorts of, uh, all the books of the Bible, videos and studies, and, and the chart that was being drawn there is all filled out in the lobby. There's those two big posters out in the lobby that have that chart all filled in with the themes and the movement of this letter to the church in Philippi. If you haven't done that yet, uh, I want to encourage you to take your phone, your camera, and take a picture of that poster out there, and, and find time in the next week or two to sit and read through this whole letter in one sitting. It'll take maybe half an hour to just read it and you can look at that chart and see how this letter is put together and the sort of things that Paul is sharing with those who are following Jesus. All right, it's time for some painful honesty. Jessica kind of leaned into this a little bit when she's talking about that chair project that you don't have done yet. Anybody else have projects in your home that are incomplete? Anyone? Yes. A little pile of tools in the garage, a stack of papers on the kitchen table, uh, maybe even Legos strewn on your bedroom floor that, you know, creating a walking hazard that are slowly coming together into something. Uh, we, many of us have these projects in our lives, things that we started that we haven't completed yet. When we moved into our house here in Kansas City several months ago, uh, we were excited and, and saw different projects we wanted to take on in our house. And one of those was the upstairs bathroom. We wanted to replace the vanity in there. It's a low vanity. I kept smacking my thigh against it, you know. And uh, it had one sink and we wanted two in there and something taller, something a little bit newer. And so um, on, we, we, we moved in and ordered a new, we found a deal at Costco and ordered a new bathroom vanity. And it arrived on June 25th. The truck pulled up, and the guys unloaded it and brought it up the driveway. And I said, just put it there in the, in the garage. And they, they got it all set up for me in the garage. They're still in the box. And uh, so that was uh, seven and a half months ago. Where, where do you think that vanity is today? Any guesses? Yeah. Still there in my garage. In fact, um, it's so big, I can't park my car in there. So for eight months, uh, I've been parking in the driveway. And as I walk through the garage... Every day, sometimes twice or three times a day, the box just laughs at me, <laughs> mocking my masculinity, you know, challenging me with the reality that I have not finished that project yet. We, we have projects like that in our world that we want to get finished up and it's not done yet. Uh, we also have these kinds of projects in our lives, in our hearts and in our minds, things that we would like to see uh, change, things that God's building that we want to see completed. Maybe it's a relationship that has gotten more difficult, and we'd like to see it move in a new direction. Uh, maybe it's just a, a deepening of our walk with God. We'd love to have space in our everyday life just to sit and allow God to speak to us. Maybe it's a volunteer opportunity, and we said, hey, when I've got, someday when I've got time, I would want to do these kinds of things, these unfinished projects that we have in our lives. And Paul writes to his friends, and he says, continue to work out your salvation, Continue at this project. Keep at it. Don't lose focus. Don't let it sit in the garage of your mind or your heart gathering dust, but continue to allow God to move in you in new ways. What does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation? Because we know that we're, we're brought into relationship with God by a free gift. We don't earn the relationship we have with God. So what does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation? I want to look at this passage in Philippians with you. So if you've got a Bible and would open up to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 12 through 18 together. You can open up your Bible app on your phone, grab that Bible on the table in front of you, and I want to read and have you follow along in this letter, this ancient letter, chapter 2, verse 12. And we know last week, uh, 
Eric Zander was here and he preached on the first half of chapter 2. And he hit that poem, that song that the video talked about, verses 6 through 11, that talk about how Jesus came into our world and the kind of life that Jesus lived. And what Paul writes here, this song that was written down, talks about Jesus becoming less, making himself less, like, like a servant, taking on the nature of a servant and being obedient even to dying on the cross for us. Jesus gave us this example of service. And then Paul says in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, he says, because of this example that Jesus has given us, verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice. He says, even if I'm being poured out, remember, Paul was writing in prison, waiting to see Caesar, and he didn't know if he was going to live much longer. He knew this might be the end of his life. So he says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, that's this way of, a way of saying, if my life is over, if this is it for me, even then I'm going to rejoice and praise God. In the chapter one, we talked about how it's strange that Paul could connect his death with joy, but he does it again right here. So you too, in verse 18, you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul starts in verse 12 and he says, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence. And whenever I read that verse, it takes me back to learning how to drive with my dad. And uh, we would drive into a parking lot and I would drive, you know, I'd park diagonally against around six spaces, just taking them all over. And I'd be like, it's no big deal, dad. Don't worry. I'll figure this out eventually. And we'd turn down a side street and I'd hit the curb with the tire and the car would jump over. And I'd be like, dad, no big deal, dad. I'll figure this out eventually. And my dad would look at me and he says, if you're driving like this with me in the car, how are you going to drive when I'm not in the car, right? When your authority is present with you and you, you, you're so relaxed, I want you to be a little bit more on, Nate, when you're driving. How are you going to handle it when I'm not with you and you're out on the highway driving around? Paul says, you, you were obedient to this way of life. You followed the way of life that Jesus had for you while I was with you. How much more I want that for you when I'm not with you, that you would continue to live this way, to grow this way. And then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, that phrase mixes us up. It's hard for us to understand. What is he saying here? Because we know that we don't earn our salvation. God doesn't hold it back from us until we prove our worth and our ability. No one's ever going to stand before God and say, hey, you owe me this. I did all the stuff, all the good deeds. I worked hard. You owe me uh, heaven. You owe me new life. God, that's not going to move God's hand. The truth is you will never be good enough for the grace and mercy of God. You will never be good enough. And you will also never be bad enough that he would withhold it from you. He simply offers it. He holds it out. This is my mercy. This is my grace. This is my life. He offers it to us. So Paul, what is he getting at when he says, work out your salvation? Sometimes when we hear that word salvation, we think of a one-time moment. 
We think it's a prayer that I prayed at one point, or it's a walk I took to the front of a church after a pastor said a few words, or it's a moment when I made a decision. And it is that, but it is not only that. Biblical salvation is a continuing movement of God in our lives, a continuing working out of our faith as God continues to work in us in ways that we're not always conscious of when he takes our story and his story and he begins to weave those two things together And he takes letter by letter, he puts words together in sentences and forms paragraphs and chapters, and he writes a new story where we are connected with God and living in a new way, the continuing movement of salvation in our lives. God is is always working, always showing up, always part of what is happening in our world. We don't always see it, but he is always there. I want to give you one more moment to share around your tables. I'm going to give you three minutes this time, so I'm being generous, all right, three minutes. What I'd love for you to do is think about when's a time that God showed up in your life in a way that you remember? When's a time when you needed comfort and and he brought comfort to you? When's a time that you were needing healing and healing came or a time when you needed to grow in a new way and he helped you grow in a new way or helped you uh, correct you in some way? So take about three minutes around your table. Just share one story. Make sure you give time for others to share. How have you seen God move in your life? All right, take three minutes and talk about that. All right, one more minute, one more minute.
All right, let me invite you to start to wrap that up and let's uh, get your attention up here again. Thanks for engaging with that. I'm, I'm sure we could go all afternoon with stories of how God has showed up in our lives, the things that he's done in us. This continuing movement of salvation, and God is always at work, always moving in us. Uh, the Bible gives us some ideas of what does this salvation look like? What does this movement, this process of salvation look like? I want to give you three uh, movements of God in our lives that, that fit into this idea of salvation. Now, others have broken it down to five or seven or, you know, there's just different ways to talk about it. I'm just going to focus in on three ideas of what it looks like to be in this, this place with God, moving in our lives, refining us and growing us up. Paul writes in this passage, he says, it is God who works in you to will and to act. It is God who does this work. It is God's will. It is his action that brings salvation into our lives and into our world. It is, it is God who reveals himself to us. We wouldn't even know where to begin as human beings if, if God hadn't showed up, if God hadn't revealed himself to us in some way. And you can think about the kind of religions that, that humans build, and it doesn't look anything like the story that we see in Scripture. Humans build uh, religions based on a, a lot of little g-gods who fight with each other and torment each other, and even creation came out of their wars, and all they do is abuse and take advantage of human beings. That's the kind of religions that we come up with. We create religions that call for human sacrifice and self-harm and destruction of the unbeliever. As humans, we've created religions that are based on rules and rituals and power and separation. We, we look inside ourselves and say, where's the divine in me? And we, we pull things out and are so self-focused. If God hadn't moved on our behalf, if God hadn't revealed himself to us, we wouldn't even know where to begin. And that's what's so beautiful about Jesus coming to earth because God revealed himself that we might not be left wondering what does it look like to have a relationship with our creator? We know what that looks like because of Jesus. He's the one who makes us right. Paul would write to his friends in Rome, he would write these words, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we still were pushing away from God, when we were doing it our way instead of God's way, when we were rebelling against him, the Bible calls that sin. Paul says that God sent his son to die for us. This first movement of God in our world and in our lives is called justification or to justify. We, uh, we were born into sin, into rebellion. We're broken. We need to be brought into a right relationship with God. And because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can experience the love of God and we are justified and we are made right in a relationship with him. And it's important to, to note that this doesn't mean that God looks at the things we've done, the way we have hurt other people, the way we've hurt ourselves. He doesn't look at that and say, oh, that's okay. That's all right. It's, it's, I just, we'll pretend like that didn't happen. It's okay. Don't worry about that. That's not what God does. He brings justice to it. He says, when you hurt someone else, when you hurt yourself, when there is pain caused, it needs to be made right again. It, it takes justice. There needs to be a payment to bring it back to right relationship. And so Jesus took on us, uh, took on himself our sin, our rebellion, the unjust things we do and have done and will do. He took all that to the cross and he paid for us. It was not a small thing. It was not God just kind of looking over it. 
don't worry about it. No, God said, I'm going to put this on myself. I'm going to put this on my son, and he's going to pay the price that we might be justified, that we might have a new life. Paul also wrote these words in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Salvation begins with God's movement in our life, with what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he died on that cross. And it continues because of God. It starts and it continues because of God's movement in our lives. This continuing work of God's action, is continuing saving of our, our lives is called sanctification, or we are sanctified. And this is a word we, we don't use all that much in our normal, everyday world. Sanctify, you can think of the word sanctity, or even uh, saint, or sacred. Those are all connected things. Sanctify means to set apart and to separate and to, to move in a new way. We are set apart by God, and he's sanctifying us. This is his continuing, continuing movement in our lives. And it means that he's working in us to slowly remove the things that do not honor him, that, that dishonor others, the things in our lives that, that hurt ourselves or hurt those around us. And, and God is at work in us, removing those things and replacing them with things that honor God, that glorify him, that help people see him in this world today. This sanctifying action is, is working in our lives even today, in this moment and later today. God is at work in us, helping us see him in new ways. And sometimes people think about this as like, like moving upward toward God or climbing a ladder spiritually, getting better and better. And I think a better way of thinking about sanctification is more like this idea of stepping down, that we, we become less, we become humble. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus takes on the nature of a servant. That's what this ongoing sanctification looks like, me becoming less, God becoming more, less of me, more of him. I humble myself, I serve others, I seek the good of others around me instead of only seeking my own good. Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, and he said these, he said these words, sanctify them by the truth, by your word, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Our transformation comes as we are open to the truth. Jesus says the word of truth. So we allow his word to change us and help us to see life in different ways. The sanctifying work continues in us. Back in Philippians, Paul would write a few ways that this might play out specifically for us. In verses 14 and 15, Paul writes these words, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly, hold firmly to the word of life. Paul says the word of life. Jesus said the word of truth. This is the word that transforms us and grows us. The Bible, scripture, the times when we sit with God and allow him to speak, when we sit with each other and God speaks through our friends and our other followers of Jesus to help us see him at work, the word of truth. And he says, Paul says, when this plays out in our lives, it looks like less grumbling Less grumbling, he says. And more, I'm going to say more freedom. He says that you will be blameless. And when I think about the opposite of blame, I think it's like freedom. Instead of holding someone and saying, this is your fault, accusing them, you, you set them free. So less, less uh, grumbling, 
less blaming, more freedom is what Paul is writing here for us. This is what it looks like as we are transformed. Instead of muttering and complaining and grumbling, we, we set people free. We allow ourselves to live free. And this idea of grumbling takes me back to the Old Testament when the people of Israel were being led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt, heading towards the land of promise. Should have taken them uh, maybe three or four weeks to make it back to their homeland. Instead, it took 40 years for them to make this journey through the wilderness. Why did it take so long? Because God was working in them to help them experience a new way of life. He said, you're no longer slaves. You're now coming into a new way, a way of walking with me. You're my children. You're my sons and daughters. And it took 40 years of God sanctifying them and working in them so that they might live in a new way. And along the way during that time, they grumbled, they complained, they didn't understand why I had to wait so long. When are we going to get there? And, and, and that's what our life is like sometimes. As God is sanctifying us, we sometimes start to grumble and murmur and wonder, and why do we have to wait? What are you doing? But God continues to work through all the hardships and all that long journey that we are on. He is doing something new, less grumbling and more freedom. God won't let anything go to waste. He's going to use it all to help us grow up in him. And Paul also says, less arguing. He says, argue less. Less arguing and more, what does he say there? More purity, right? He says, stop, stop arguing about things that don't really matter. The idea of arguing there, it's the same word that's other places it's translated as questioning and reasoning. It has to do with our own human thoughts, our best ideas, the ways we make sense of life. And Paul says, this causes divisions among you. This causes arguing. He says, I want to see less arguing and more of God purifying you, getting you focused on what is true and right, the vision and clarity and intention that he can bring to your life. The sanctifying work of God continues in us as we allow him to work in us. Less grumbling, more freedom, less arguing, more purity. And Paul says, as, as God continues that work in your life, he says, you're going to shine out like stars. In the heavens. You're going to bring light to dark places. You're going to illuminate the shadows, bring brilliance to the gray shades of this world, the places of hardship and pain and suffering, that God will continue to use you to bring light to those dark places. Salvation begins with God's movement in our lives. It continues, and it, and it's found in, it finds its completion because of God. In Philippians 3, later in this letter, Paul would write these words. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We are going to be transformed in a complete way, in a perfect way, that we might better reflect God's glory. And this is what we call glorification, or we glorify what God is doing, what he's done. This is the last part, the last movement of salvation in our lives when we glorify God in a complete way, in a perfect way, as he brings us into his kingdom. This is all of God's action as we surrender. He justifies us, he sanctifies us, he will eventually glorify us. This is God's movement as we are relying on him. This is God's will as we are available to him. As we open our lives to him, he continues to grow us up. There's a Scottish pastor and theologian named William Barclay, and he writes these words, There can be no salvation without God, but what God offers, people must take. 
It's never God who withholds salvation. It is always people who deprive themselves of it. God continues to offer us this new way of life. And when Paul says, work out your salvation, he says, allow God to continue the work in you. Allow God to move you in new ways. Allow him to create in you a new creation. The old is gone. Something new has come. And you have to open your hands and allow God to do that work in you. And so when he says, do it with fear and trembling, he's not saying in in a way of being afraid of God. It's a fear that we would get in the way of the work that God is doing, that we would somehow oppose this ongoing salvation that God has for us. It's not a fear that causes us to hide from God like Adam did in the garden. It's a fear that, that we might stall out or interfere with the, God, the work that God wants to do in our lives. It's a trembling that we might miss the opportunity that God has for us to continue to work out this salvation, to allow him to work it out in us, that we might miss what he is doing. That's what we tremble about. And as we move against this selfish focus of our lives, God brings into us joy. We rejoice. We have a, a different point of view, a different way of approaching life. There is joy around this continual movement of God in us. Paul finishes up chapter 2, lifting up a couple examples. He says, you want to know what this looks like? What does it look like to continue to live this way? Let me tell you about two people, Paul says. He says, I hope, look at this is chapter 2, verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one like him. Nobody's like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Takes me back to verse 4 of chapter 2 here. Where Paul says, not looking out to your own interests only, but each of you to the interests of others. You need to look out for others. He says, here's Timothy. That's how Timothy lives. He allows God to use him to be a blessing to others. He seeks to serve others the way Christ served us. And then in verse 25, he brings up somebody else. He says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that you will see him again, and you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. I love the reality, the realness of a letter that Paul writes to his friends. He says, your friend was sick, and you wondered how he was. He's okay. I'm sending him back. And Paul even says, I was anxious. If you struggle with anxiety, Paul had some anxiety as well. I was anxious because I didn't know what would happen. But I want to send him back and, and share the good news. He, he gives himself to God's work. He almost died because of his availability to God, that this continuing salvation work in, in him that God is using to draw others. This is an example for us. God called Timothy, he called Epaphroditus, and they responded. They didn't earn God's grace but they were available and God continued to work in them and through them, helping them understand a way of surrender, a way of sacrifice, a way of joy. I want to pray with you as we finish up here together and, and pray we're either in this justified place or we're in this sanctified place. One day, 
Lord willing, we'll be in the glorified place. But today, you might need to be justified. You might need to understand, and not just understand. Maybe you already know this story of what Jesus has done for you, but you haven't received it for yourself. You haven't opened your hands to God and said, I need your forgiveness. I need to have a new way of life. And perhaps that justification is for you today, that Jesus gave his life for you. So I want to pray for you about that. If you have made that decision, then perhaps what you need is that continuing work of sanctification in your life. Maybe there's things that God wants to do in you and you're, maybe you're spiritually bored. Maybe you feel stalled out. Maybe you're hungry for God to do something new in your life or through your life. Well, let's pray about that and ask that God would continue to guide you and lead you as he continues to save you and sanctify you. So let's talk to God together. Will you bow your head with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this new life you created us for. We thank you for sending Jesus that, that he might give himself, that we might have life. Father God, we, we cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. But your mercy and your grace, you have given us a way to be in right relationship with you, to experience your presence and your power and your promises in our everyday lives. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning that may know about Jesus, maybe have gone to church for a little while, they may know what the Bible says, but they have never surrendered to you and allowed you to justify them, to connect them back to you, Father. I pray that today they would understand that they are forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross and they would open their lives to you and receive forgiveness today. And Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here who want to see your movement in their life, want to experience the new creation you made them for. And Lord, I pray that you would speak that you would encourage them, that you would correct them, that you would open their eyes so that they might see what it is you want to do in them today. Continue your work of sanctification in us, Father. Removing the things that offend you, the things that are against you, Lord, and putting instead these fruits that bring new life, peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, self-control. Father, grow in us the things that will help the light of the world, illuminate the dark places. Lord, we want to see you at work in our lives, in our families, where we work in our neighborhoods, at our schools, Lord, that your light might shine out. So continue to sanctify us and breathe in us new life. Might we see you glorified. Might we see you lifted up. And we trust you, Father, for the future. One day that we will see you face to face that we will be complete and perfected because of your, your grace and your power. And Father, we look forward to that day, and while we wait, continue to use us. We pray all of this because of your son, Jesus, who gave his life to pay for my sin, to pay for our sin. It's because of him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.